Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com How to travel through time. Obviously, time travel in the strictest sense is not possible. We can't go back to 2nd century Rome and visit Marcus Aurelius. We can't have dinner with Socrates in ancient Greece. But there is a way, a pretty magical way, as the writer Adam Rubin explained to me on the Daily Stoke podcast a while back, that we can travel to the future, or at least speak to the future, by doing the work we do right now. Think about Marcus Aurelius, who ascended to the throne at age 40. He was not alone when this happened, you see, because 23 years earlier, he had begun training for this moment. In a sense, his past self was there with him in the form of the wisdom he had passed along to his future self all those years before. Think of all the blows that befell Seneca. He was at least luckier than some. His past self, via premeditatio malorum, had prepared his future self for exactly such an occurrence. Each day we have this ability to send a message to the future. The decision to get up early, to eat well, to spend a few quiet but meaningful moments with someone we love. These are all things that, whatever the future holds, we will look back on and be grateful to our past selves for, if we could just muster the discipline to send that message forward through our actions now. If we can, we'll wonder many years from now, how did they know I was going to need this? We'll think, how perfect. We won't be able to thank them, of course, but we can pay it forward. We can get to work sending the next message, making the next contribution 
to our future selves. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. Just got back from Miami yesterday. Was there very briefly to give a talk. Man, totally different, totally different universe. Uh, But it was nice to get in the sun and go for a run on the beach. Probably as different a place in the United States as you can get from Miami is Iowa. I've only been to Iowa once. I gave a talk in Des Moines uh, a few years ago at a library, uh, which was a fun little experience. Also a beautiful place to go for a run. If I remember correctly, I went, I run along a river or some lake. I don't know. It was very cold, but I, but I had a nice run there. This is on my book tour for stillness, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyways, my guest on the podcast today is a lifelong native of Iowa, although he has seen most of the world since then. He was a vice admiral in the United States Navy. Admiral Mike Franken is a graduate of MIT, University of Virginia, the Naval Postgraduate College of Physics, as well as Babson College. So he's a very educated guy. He entered the Navy in 1981, was the first commanding officer of the USS Winston Churchill, and he worked for everyone from Donald Rumsfeld to Senator Ted Kennedy. He was the director of the Defense POW-MIA Agency, which oversees the location and retrieval of the remains of American veterans from foreign wars. And he's now seeking the Democratic Party nomination for the U.S. Senate in Iowa. You can go to his website at frankenforiowa.org. It was a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, we talk about some good old-fashioned values, talk about Winston Churchill And uh, we talk about exploring the world, uh, among other things. I think you're really going to like this interview. Enjoy my conversation with Admiral Mike Franken. And uh, if you live in Iowa, don't forget to vote for Admiral Franken and uh, enjoy this conversation. So I was I was trying to think about where to start. And uh, I always love asking Navy people about Admiral Stockdale. Uh, given his background in stoicism, and then I, I noticed you your work with POWs, so I thought that might be an interesting place for us to for us to start. Uh, well, um, so, yes, I had I started a defense agency, and and then had to name it and get the necessary congressional authorization and the uh, the business rules laid out. And we did this in a bipartisan manner, uh, and and Chuck Hagel was uh, you know called me hither and said, okay, we need to do this. I was a two-star, yeah, I was a two-star admiral at the time. And uh, and it was a rather dainty kind of a, a, a watch where you step process because as it existed, it was a consolidation of numerous other entities stretching from, well, Europe to uh, uh, Southwest, uh, Southeast Asia. So um, and then and develop new labs and new infrastructure and uh, put the necessary manning document or staffing document together. We did that, and uh, it turned out to be quite successful. But I guess the um, the issue that that was most concerning was at the time, a, a lot of bodies were unidentified, bones were unidentified that were held in a repository in Pearl Harbor. 
at, at a place called the Punch Bowl. And uh, I worked to get the authorization to uh, have those uh, re in, uh, re-looked at and, and recategorized. And, and ultimately, that became that USS Oklahoma, USS Utah, which you see quite frequently those individuals' closure coming to those families. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, my father was in World War II, wounded vet. My grandfather, World War I. I had a brother in the military. At one time, I had three brother-in-laws in all the different services, doctor, aviator, ground pounder, et cetera, in the Vietnam era. So, you know, I, I, we're not a militaristic family, but it was a manner in which, A, you gave back, and it also provided school. For me, it was graduate schools. And I mean, who would have thought that I would have worked for Ted Kennedy? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a farm kid from Northwest Iowa, from the boonies. And, uh, you know, a farmer in King Arthur's Court type of a situation. But I've always had a soft spot for, uh, for those who uh, sacrificed a lot for, the, for, for others. And uh, so, you know, I thought I'd do the same thing and, and also get my college paid for. That's kind of how I ended up in this line of work. Well, I, I have to imagine that it's interesting you brought that up because, yeah, you'd think something as sort of uh, nonpartisan uh, and straightforward as, as POWs identifying the remains from, from uh, America's wars, uh, you wouldn't think, oh, that's probably going to run into a lot of bureaucracy and difficulty. But, <laughs> oh, but oh. I imagine that was really the graduate school and just how hard it is to get even simple things done in a place like Washington or, or you know, even in, in, in the Navy itself? Well, w- what I learned on a lot of international operations uh, is it's not so much your adversary who's the problem, but it's those who are, who are affiliated with you that become the hurting aspects, as in H-E-R-D, the hurting aspects, and the people who have other ulterior motives to the prime objective, et cetera, that really caused the issue. So in, in that situation, more complex than, than is due for this discussion, but depending on if your lost loved one was from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Army, Air Force, Navy, aviator, non-aviator, ground bomber. So you see all these these advocacy groups that cycle down and say, you're not doing enough to find those people or because of the acidity of the soil, you should work harder here. They get all the attention because you're a Navy guy. It's, I mean, it, there's, there's this infighting, which, sure. and then of course uh, you have people associated with this who claim to be 501Cs who really aren't. And, uh, and, and I mean, that's, not just this industry, but it's or this this thing. This, this is in all aspects. So there's this this cleansing process that has to happen as well. So it was quite the kerfuffle, um, and ultimately turned out to be successful. A manager. Yeah. How do you, how, how do you do that? All right, it seems like uh, fighting against the enemy is at least straightforward and clear. As you work with the competing agendas of different uh, well-meaning but perhaps uh, self-interested groups or, or they're, they're, they have a very specific legislative or charitable purpose. How do you get everyone on board with something uh, that, that requires basically everyone to compromise and thus everyone to be unhappy in some way? Um, 
you, you don't necessarily. So you, you make sure that this is the prime objective. And, uh, and if it's within the five items that are most important to you, then re rewicker your five to make this your number one. And then we will cycle through the next four uh, and then let that be the discussion topic. So you try to minimize the, the breadth of the dissenting opinions and, um, uh, and try to use a, a, a plethora of logic. And usually logic is, uh, is winnable, and, and especially when uh, it's well understood. The problem can also be in today's media and the ability to manipulate what people say. You'd be surprised at how nefarious well-meaning individuals who have an altruistic sense can be so that they win a little bit more than the next person. Right. And there's, there's a lot behind that statement. Yeah, no, I imagine. And I imagine as a, as a, a member of the armed forces, you're a little bit more used to a clarity of purpose than when you have to venture out into the political or the the real world, uh, and and uh, that that could probably be both frustrating and a little demoralizing. Uh, not that the Navy doesn't have its bureaucracy. Well, it, it, so, so I had an interesting uh, background. Having, you know, I, I sat across underneath a banyan tree with uh, warlords, clan leaders, uh, when I'm hopelessly outgunned. And I, I think of a place in Lear, South Sudan one time when I'm being guarded by Mongolian UN soldiers under German command. And the German guy is in a dress uniform for some reason, wearing a pistol of all of all. I mean, it's, it's like you're, you're way out of yeah. character here because everybody else in combat uniforms uh, speaking to the SPLA. Uh, and then the SPLA in uh, 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 opponent uh, in opposition, they're called IOs. And, uh, and speaking to one underneath this this uh, this awning, and who I quite quite sure they'd just as soon shoot me than talk to me. Sure. And then speaking to their opponent a few hours later under a tree, uh, and then knowing that half is what, what, what's being said is probably not exactly accurate or even truthful. So I, I'm kind of used to uh, balancing that. Uh, and I had a, 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 pleth a whole bunch of examples of that. I mean, you, you name it uh, in, in my international uh, experience. But so I'm not I'm not a nugget. I'm not a rookie from that perspective. And uh, and I think age and experience uh, and a lack of uh, or critical thinking comes into play and are become valuable valuable insight tools. Yeah, I was writing about uh, Eisenhower. I'm, I'm I'm doing this book on uh, self discipline uh, right now, and I was writing about Eisenhower. He has this amazing quote about how uh, freedom is the opportunity for self discipline, and. I was thinking about, you know, so he sort of has this slow career, uh, you know, he basically skips the First World War, he's never really commanded troops in battle, finally does get himself, you know, the, the named commander of the, the supreme commander of the Allied forces. He suddenly has immense power and yet actually has almost no power whatsoever in that he's the head of this enormous coalition with conflicting 
you know, goals and ideals and people, and he really can't make anyone do anything. And it struck me as kind of a paradox of leadership is that we think the president or insert, you know, head of this company or that organization has all this power. And really they have almost no power whatsoever. They, they, they can't. And, and Eisenhower said something like this. He said, you know, leadership is, uh, is the art of making people do things because they want to do them, and and how how much that encapsulates the paradox of of that position that he held. Well, oftentimes you have to convince them that they want to do it as well. Yes. Yeah. So, so so one time I was responsible for Somalia, and as a as a, one of uh, many countries under my charge, and, and uh, this was in concert obviously with the State Department. Uh, the state, the ambassador was in Nairobi at the time, and we were trying to bring the transitional federal government into into. But but we were the eastern the eastern side of the of uh, of the shore base from Guile down to Mogadishu. There were a lot of pirates, you know. The and nobody likes a pirate, right? Sure. So so, but my my ability to uh, to control the piracy in Somalia is limited to by just a couple of tools. And, you know, you, you've got to be very careful as to who you harm in life, because oftentimes they're just people looking for a different line of work or a salvation of an income. And so uh, you would think that the American, uh, the American armed forces would be valuable uh, commodities to help you, but they don't have the, the, the necessary writ to do so. But so you find who can help you. And sometimes it's a it's an interesting concoction of bedfellows, uh, but uh, you know you find what works, and ultimately uh, we were reasonably successful with uh, piracy and and bringing it from an all time high to zero in eighteen months time. But but it it uh, you use a, a variety of tools at your disposal when you don't necessarily command any of them. Yeah, it it, it must be weird, you know, being sent out, uh, you know, with the most modern of technology to battle pirates when you're, you're essentially being sent, the, the American Navy is being sent on the same mission that the Roman Navy was being sent on, that the same mission that Thomas Jefferson was sending the American Navy to deal with. Is that, is that a weird feeling to just think that sometimes what you did is what people have literally been doing since Humans well, have I, ever existed. I'd, I'd go back. To, I'd go back to Vasco da Gama, actually, in that area. <laughs> so, well, I wasn't in charge of the waters. I was just the, the beach on in was was my was my area of responsibility. So, my control as a Navy person, oddly, I was in, I was in charge of the land forces. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and, and, a, and, a, and a big force at that, but. Uh, uh, it was to, you know, my, the best tool I had was the person who owned the cell phone network and the, and the advertising agency who we could put up ads about women's education and, and personal health and uh, uh, encouraging messages to be good to each other. And they would stay up for as long as uh, uh the the nefarious aspect, and I don't and I don't want to just say it's it's one group because it's a variety of groups would let them stay up, sure. uh, and then and then you you could cajole others to compel the pirates to get out of town uh, so that they didn't have access to electricity and cell phones and cot and that sort of thing and and they dissipate they'd go do something else but you know you didn't want to drop bombs on everybody that's ridiculous because most of these people are just 
youngsters looking for a line of work. So right. um, it, was, it was interesting, interesting, but yet satisfying that we were successful in that and didn't have to harm people. Yeah, and and probably that's what's been driving people <clears throat> to 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 piracy for thousands of years. Yeah, sure. Yeah. When so. I when I interviewed uh, Major General uh, Dan Kane, he was talking about sort of becoming a student of leadership. How how he sort of learned to be a leader. H- how have you thought about that in in your career? Were there certain people that you studied under that were mentors to you, or certain historical figures that you really looked up to? But how how have you You've been a leader for four decades. How have you thought about that as a as a discipline of study? Um, you know i i wasn't I wasn't good at reading self help books. I, I read I read uh, books on you know uh, not novels, uh, but you know substance of history books, etc. And um, but I, I think my father uh, was pretty instrumental. Uh, when I was 19 years old, um, I was working in a slaughterhouse, and uh, and uh, for you know pay as you go in college, youngest of nine kids in in the corner of Northwest Iowa, and um, the, the the slaughterhouse asked me over the holidays if I wanted to head a a worker team to rehab the rendering plant in this place, and it was a pretty big uh, construction project, and I said sure. You know, this is time and a half. Absolutely. Um, and my dad said, don't do anything. Don't tell it to anybody to do anything because I'm going to be the youngest person there and, and yeah. a foreman. You do it first and then ask them to do it. And ultimately, they probably will. So all the nasty jobs, you know, I put I'd, I'd assign work lists and then I would do the nasty job. Uh, and and ultimately, I had to fire a couple of people. But but uh, you just learn early on that you've got to be the stand up person. Sure. And, uh, and, and take it upon yourself to be the first one there and the last to leave and work a little harder than everybody else. And don't ask anything that you wouldn't do yourself of anybody and ensure that they were properly outfitted and they were safe. Uh, and, and, and they were, um, there was a, le- a bit of humor and, uh, an optimism and a gung ho-ness uh, and I, I guess I guess it just kind of comes naturally over time. Um, it's a little harder if you're an introvert, but I think as a as a quasi introvert, you develop more worthwhile skills in getting people to be happy about doing things for you. Was it, what What did your dad do? Um, he was a machinist, a welder. He he built a machine shop where there were no towns within 10 miles in Northwest Iowa coming out of World War II to fix farming implements. And uh, so his entire life, he worked with his hands. And when I, when I worked for the slaughterhouse, I made more money as a 19-year-old than he ever did in his life. Wow. Um, and, you know, he raised nine kids. So, so he, was a, he was a smart guy, an inventive guy who didn't believe in investments and didn't believe in making money unless you worked for it. Interesting, very interesting perspective. He didn't like people that bought land and sold it for a higher price. He thought that was you know, some kind of uh, improper thing in America. And, and we, we always, my brother and I reflect uh, on that to this day that he just didn't buy stock and, and the like. And that was just the way he was. Uh, so, so he was a bear of a man, uh, kind as can be, tough as nails, 
uh, and then died too young. Yeah, that's uh, that that must have been an interesting sort of uh, a humbling sort of blue collar perspective to grow up with, but then also one that you had to figure out the limitations of and to expand as you went into the world and, and became a, a sort of a, a leader. Well, and a story on that, Ryan, is um, so <laughs> one of the things I did as a kid to make money was to harvest, I'm using a nice term, gophers because gophers would make holes and cattle would step in them and, and hurt themselves and, and the like. So farmers would, the extension agent would pay us a quarter or something for every gopher that we, that we would bring to him in a, in a can. Yeah. Uh, so I was a little boy and I would uh, lay in the sunshine with my dog with a little 22 and shoot these gophers and did that for hours on end. And then I was the a vivid memory of walking across the cold the cold granite floor and with my with my bell jar with salted feet in it because that's what you handed in and you turned it into the bank teller and she gave you cash for it and i was a you know, little boy and i and and my my sister martha looked down at me and she said michael you don't even have shoes on <laughs> and and i didn't you know i was dirty bloody uh you know beat up legs like a country kid yeah, you sound uh, like Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, with a bit, you know, and, and very much so. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I thought to myself, you know, you don't have to be a hick. Uh, you you can cure yourself of that. So good good language skills, good manners, stay clean, stay semi-groomed, et cetera, et cetera. You learn that and that, that you can, and it's not fooling people as much as it is um, trying to be something a little bit better than, than, you know, the situation you were born in. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic, code SPACE80. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites 
experts. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, yeah, I think sometimes people, and I, I think we see this now with, you know, people are upset about political correctness or this or that. Sometimes uh, there's a, the, the world is a game and you have to figure out how to play the game, even if you don't like all the rules, even if it's more comfortable to walk around without shoes or, or, or even if you were raised a certain way, like society civilization is a set of made up rules and we have to figure out how to play those rules, just as I'm sure the Navy, to get ahead in the Navy, it required understanding how the, you know, one got ahead, what what one needed to do, even if that was very different than, you know, with the actual skills required to command a ship or shoot a gun or something, you, yeah. you've got to figure out the soft skills and the hard skills and combine them together. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I've always been, a, a, I think, just because my career has been very different, you know, as a writer, you, sit, you effectively work for yourself, you could do it at any age, it, you, you could walk around barefoot if you want. Um, I've always been impressed slash also in awe of like uh, uh, coaches in, in professional sports or, or people like yourself, like where you get to the top of it. But there's no there's no such thing as a meteoric rise like you. I'm sure it was decades before you started to reach those those top ranks in, in, say, the Navy or, you know, somebody might be an assistant coach in the NFL for 30 years before they get their first shot at, at leading a team. How does how does one manage the patience of that? I feel like I'm so impatient that I could never do something like that. Um, you know, I, I think it is I, I think it is. Uh, respecting those that you've been charged in leading has a lot to do with it. I remember coming straight out of college, going straight to my first ship and being handed a division of 43 people and walking out there. And I, and honestly, I, I haven't the foggiest what's going on. I'm the least informed person and I'm in charge of them. You know, it's totally, uh, totally improper. And um, so I, you need to be humble. You need to be more, I think, more inclusive to ask them how best I can I can do my job. And you've got to kind of get them to like you as a person. And oftentimes that element of liking you will help you help cover your up up your your shortcomings. And I think a lot of the shortcomings of my my life have been covered up by others because they wanted me to succeed. Sure. Uh, and and uh, and then oftentimes you know, there's an element of luck in all of this. I just had this discussion with somebody yesterday who didn't make admiral, and he probably should have. And and I and I, I you know tried to encourage him. Hey, listen. It just happens sometimes, and there's nothing you can do about it. Don't live in the past. Be happy with the future. Be, you know, health, happiness, et cetera, is the important stage of this life. And you were a leader. You just you just didn't rise to that next level. And it's not for everybody. That's for sure. So was he ha he or she having to come to terms with the fact that they would never get that thing? Or was it more of a they have to wait for the next go around? No. So th they were done in the military. You know, you, they time out. 
And yeah. uh, so always expecting, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And uh, then, you know, you got two shots and, and the first one is like swing and a miss. Second one was, oh, I thought that was my sweet spot. Didn't make it. Now what? So, you know, you're, you think, well, does my spouse look at me differently? Do my kids look at me differently? Do people look differently at, at cocktail parties, dinner parties? Am I viewed lesser because I was on that ascendancy? I've done all the things necessary, et cetera. But it's a crowded field. And it's, it's rather fickle who gets selected in many cases. And there is such a thing as, you know, people say you make your own luck to a degree. Sure. But a lot of it is timing. And, and, and for, for his selection, they didn't need his skill groups that year. And therefore he didn't get uh, picked. And, and that's just, uh, just, just happenstance. But and I imagine the, the difficulty of that is also thinking of all of the sacrifices, all of the time away from home, all of the the things that one endured, telling oneself it would be worth it when you get the brass ring and then you don't you don't get it. That would be devastating and frustrating. One could have so many different reactions to that thing and just going, hey, it wasn't my. It wasn't my uh, my chance. That that would be hard to swallow, I imagine. Well, so every senator on earth wonders what it would have been like to be vice president. Every vice president thinks what it would have been like to be president. Every president thinks what would have been better for he or ho- hopefully a she to have done differently. Everybody has that next rung. And yes. that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but... If you retire a senior enlisted person, why didn't I become the most senior enlisted person in the Air Force? Why didn't I become the captain of that best ship? Why didn't I become a, a you know, so I retired as a three-star. Why didn't I become a four-star? Do I, 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 I submitted my resignation, um, but, you know, I probably would not have been selected anyway. Who knows? But uh, don't dwell on it. Everybody taps out in that particular area. But inwardly, inwardly is what really counts. Where's the sky? And if you grow personally, you grow emotionally and and intellectually, uh, and you grow within humankind and altruistically, that has that unlimited potential and only limited by your physicality, ultimately. And that's what something one ought ought to perceive as being of equal import as to one's professionalism. Yeah, and I think ultimately, if you were confident that you did your best along the way, uh, that you you were of service along the way, that is a better motivator and also allows you to sleep at night regardless of the outcome than if you are, if your work and sacrifice or whatever is conditional on a certain accomplishment or a certain reward or a certain rank. Um, I think about this as an author, you know, you spend all this time writing these books, but yeah, there's a ton of luck involved, right? You could, your book could come out the day your publisher goes out of business. I, I tell the story about one of my favorite novelists, this guy, John Fonte, he puts out this novel in uh, 1933, I think one of the great American novels. Um, But as it happens, his publisher is sued by Hitler the month it comes out for uh, illegally uh, pirating Mein Kampf. Right. They published an, Ameri- an English edition of Mein Kampf. 
Hitler has his publisher sue them. And in effect, this is a little known story in, in a U.S. federal court, Hitler's copyright and his and, and uh, uh, HMH, still a publisher in the United States, their copyright over Mein Kampf is upheld. This guy's publisher is bankrupted and the, the novel is lost yeah. for 70 years. So, you know, you could do everything right and then, you know, just get that freak instance of bad luck. And, and you don't you don't now all of a sudden you're having to ask yourself if, if it was worth it. Yeah. Well, so Winston Churchill, uh, name we all recognize, yes. goes by Winston S. Churchill. And the reason he added an S in his name is because coincident with his life was another author. I think that person was an American who was Winston Churchill. I did and not know this. More, who was more, more, remarkably more or significantly more famous initially than he was. So Winston wrote him a letter one time saying, hey, can we come to an accommodation, et cetera? And the guy sloughed him off. Go away, little boy. Yeah. So that's how Winston got his S. He said, OK, well, I have to differentiate myself. And so, you know, maybe if this guy would have reached an accommodation and gotten to know Winston, they could have done, you know, like Winston and Winston and made he would have been more famous as well. So ultimately, uh, reaching an accommodation is ever so important and understanding that it's not all about you. Well, you were the captain of the USS uh, Churchill, weren't you? I was, yeah. My first that, command. There's not a lot of U.S. ships named after uh, after uh, foreign citizens, are there? Well, technically, Winston Churchill was afforded his U.S. Yes. citizenship. But yes, I think there were six uh, such such ships that were named after foreign-born individuals, you know, Bonham Richard, et cetera, a few others. And, uh, but, uh, and I, and I, I actually argued, uh, some years later that we ought to do more of that because sure. although there's some great Americans and, and, but some extremely unknown individuals who are only really recognized in a small cubby of individuals, that doesn't make it wrong but ultimately, we could develop a broader following of U.S. Navy entities if we looked at who that Czechoslovakian was, for instance, in uh, Dachau, who saved a bunch of people's lives, or sure. that partisan in uh, Rwanda who saved a bunch of uh, Tutsi lives or Hutu's lives, et cetera. I mean, there's others on Earth who show the principles that we value very much that maybe we ought to expand the naming convention of our assets in America because America is nothing but a melting pot, right? Sure. We're all in this together. And, and, and we are, are viewed as that beacon of melding together of populations. We should expand, I think, who we recognize to be maybe external today, but ultimately here tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what I think sometimes we get wrong in some of our political debates about immigration. Of course, one has to have strong borders and uh, security matters and uh, the rules of law matters. But I mean, America is a country to me more, uh, America to me is more a country that is an idea than it is a country that is a set of very specific borders. And of course, borders matter, but, you know, if you're a country of ideas, it seems like we should be going around annexing figuratively people we want to make Americans or that we want to celebrate as being in line with this American ideal. And uh, so I very much like the imagery of what you're talking about. 
Well, our annexation, if you will, of others should only be throttled by the gap that we are creating from whence they come. We've got to make sure that uh, demanding the best and the brightest and the people with the most verve and, and, and uh, energy, energy don't devoid the countries and the villages that they come from. So yes. uh, and what's, what's, really, what's really important, I think, is that we provide them the essence of America, that concept that you mentioned, that idea that some stay sure, but they also have the consideration of their homeland that they go back and help. And, and then ultimately, um, you know, as I told people in many countries, I think that's great that your, your daughter, your son is educating themselves in America. What are you thinking that they'll do when they come back? Right. And they say, oh, well, we hope that they stay. I said, well, that's fine. So do I. But I would also ask that they, whatever skill craft they garner, that they maintain this, this foot back in home country where there's some bleed back. No, I think about that too. Like to me, the great mark of, we were talking about sports coaches earlier, the great coaches don't just have a certain number of NBA championships or a certain number of Super Bowls or, or, or All-Stars or whatever it is. The best coaches also have the most impressive coaching trees right? So Bill Belichick or Nick Saban uh, have the best uh, coaching trees in college and professional football because their assistants and protégés and strength and conditioning coaches and, 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 and front office people now run all the other organizations. And, and I think to me, America succeeding as an empire, I read a great book a few years ago called How to Hide an Empire. And he was basically saying, you know, up until World War II, almost all the empires were based on territory. You know, Britain goes around and sets up all these colonies. Uh, the Romans go around and set up all these colonies. But the American empire coming out of the Second World War is an empire not of boots on the ground necessarily, but the standards which we set. Why, you know, first off that everyone speaks English, but, but also that, you know, screws were set up the American way or that, you know, they drive on this side of the road. Like what America exported, the, the empire that America is, is primarily a soft power uh, uh, empire. And sure. uh, and I think even inside organizations and people, this sort of soft power coaching tree, who are you influencing? Who do you have in alignment with your principles and ideals is just as important as, you know, what do you literally control? Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, I, I was... Had a very interesting conversation one time in Carl uh, Skrona, Sweden, of all places. Um, an elderly uh, woman said to me, "You know what? One of the greatest things America did for Sweden was when when so many of the Swedes during the uh, the the bad times, economic times, immigrated immigrated to the United States. Some came back, and they impressed upon us that drinking during the winter months." And the prevalence of alcohol in our lives is not necessarily a good thing. Interesting. And it, and it runs in contravention to our religious principles in many respects that maybe we ought to relook at ourselves. So she said, curiously, and I, and, I've, and I remember this, that it's one of those things that America gave back to us where on, on winter nights, instead of drinking so much, why don't we continue working? Why don't we continue thinking about different concepts, et cetera? And I said, really? That's what America? She goes, oh, yes, my family remembers that. 
that when Americans came back, when, when Swedes came back to Sweden, they just viewed things a little bit differently. And I thought, well, I'll be doggone. Who's to argue with that? Yeah, the, the American work ethic and our entrepreneurial spirit and uh, our ideas of self-discipline and self-control. These are wonderful cultural exports. Yeah, indeed. indeed. So I, I was curious for you, uh, There, you have this long career in the Navy. Uh, you could be very much enjoying your retirement or you know, sitting on corporate boards. There's any number of things you could do. You could be a consultant. Uh, you could give public talks. Um, the Stoics talk a lot about, this is actually an interesting comparison, I think. The Stoics uh, and the Epicureans. Uh, Seneca is saying that uh, the distinction between the Stoics and the Epicureans is the Epicureans get involved in politics uh, only if they have to. And he says the Stoics will get involved in politics in life um, unless something prevents them. So what 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 motivates you to decide to to enter to enter politics when you could do literally anything else that I'm sure be sitting in a slightly more luxurious, uh, 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 you know, uh, place than you are right now? Well, this isn't a folding chair, just so you know, it's <laughs> it's a stackable chair. <laughs> Rentable, I'm sure. Rented, I'm sure. No, stolen out of another office. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm more of an Epicurean. Um, you know, it, it, I never, I was never really political. And matter of fact, I'm of the mindset that when working in the executive branch of the federal government, uh, and I never intended to make military service my life. I, I joined the military in essence to take a, uh, a, a, a vacation from ultimately going to medical school. I was going to become a doctor, a country doctor. And then one thing led to another and suddenly, you know, falling pell-mell, things happened. But uh, working early on for, I, I was doing a federal executive fellowship uh, at the Brookings Institute, and I got told to go work on the Hill. And I walked into the office of the guy who swings the biggest hammer, this was in the Clinton administration, I had to go with the Democrat, and it was Ted Kennedy. And he brought me in and gave me, loaded me up with responsibilities and never questioned my my ethics, my my ethos, or anything like that, and and we got along swimmingly. Uh, lots of management, thousands of staff members, multiple commands over time, three tours in essence in legislative affairs, uh, a heart that really is, uh, you know, ancestors that were um, uh, settlers in Northwest Iowa, giants of the earth type settlers, and. Uh, you know, it's it it boils down to something exceedingly corny, and I'm almost embarrassed embarrassed to see, but it kind of stops the conversation. If not me, who? Sure. Uh, and you know, you're healthy enough. I don't. I, you know, my my wife and I live a, a common life. We don't need the corporate income. I've got a retirement income. We're healthy, kind of enough, and. Um, uh, and, and settled and balanced on matters that it, this is a continuation of service. And, and I will say that uh, having done it once and then turned around because of, uh, of other political considerations, this time, you know, there's an aspect of, is the country well? Is the country settled? Are we a little bit unhinged or more than a little bit? 
what what is it about a retired military officer bootstraps Iowa values uh, adoptive father you know all those things is there some benefit to this where you're kind of a commoner and you can perhaps bridge across the aisle uh, in 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 what has been heretofore Republican territory uh, and say hey you know I might be a good option for you. Uh, Science-based, physics, engineering, build infrastructure, reach across the aisle, get along with, regardless of gender, regardless of color, et cetera. Um, if not me, who? And um, it's almost a, it would almost be irresponsible if I didn't at least avail myself to do this. And once availed, people said, you know, get back in the ring there, big guy. And here I am. It does. It does feel like the country is not is not well, and I don't just mean because of this uh, pandemic that has you know sickened and killed so many people, but it does it does feel like things are coming apart a little bit, and it feels like people are kicking out pretty important legs of the stool without much of a regard for. Uh, the long-term stability, connections with each other—it feels like we're um, we're we're entering dangerous territory. Well, I, I think everybody can add anecdotally their experiences day to day, where perhaps people were a bit more gruff than they needed to be. Yeah. Perhaps somebody gave you the bird when they didn't really, you know, what was that about? Yeah. Um, a uh, an, an something that just frankly, just wasn't nice. Yeah. And when you have a choice in life to be happy, when you have a choice to be helpful, you have a choice to be friendly, help, pick up a piece of trash when no one's, when no one's looking. I sense there's a coarseness, a roughness that is a, as a result of a dark darkness undercurrent in America. And we can talk about why that is. Uh, does it stretch back to 9/11? Does it does it go back farther than that? Is it is it demographics? Is it political? Is it income based? Or is it all of those things? Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm a little bias, of course, as an author, and whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. That's audible.com slash dailystoic or text dailystoic to 500-500. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform 
helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com stoic. That's netsuite.com stoic. Yeah, to me, I, I think one of the things I feel like a lot of the frustrations that people, a lot of the, it's like because it doesn't feel like anything is working, right? It doesn't feel like uh, the legislative branch is, is passing legislation that people need. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, it, it feels like all these different parts of the system aren't working. And so I, I just wonder if people, that there's this kind of pent up frustration that we're ending up taking out on each other, on our neighbors, when really, if we could all just, you know, as they say in sports, if each individual person, each individual component of the thing would do their job, things might get back on track and and uh, it might lessen some of the, the pent upness of where we are. Yeah, I I agree. We We drive too fast. We're too reckless. Uh, we don't say thank you enough. Uh, we don't converse with each other the way we, I think we, we did just a mere few years ago. Um, every, I mean, in some respects, what is right is now wrong and what is vehemently evil is considered appropriate. Yes. And, 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 I, and it's, and it's like, what happened to us? And, and this is not, this is not in the, in the, the one sigma of a population, but you can have that 40%, that 30% who is just so, I think, anxious, not anxious as in eager, anxious as in the real definition of the word that uh, feel like the, there's, a, there's something unjust in the world. And by George, they're going to get their two cents out of it. Yeah. It's like, again, we talked about political correctness. You can be bothered by this or that. But the the response to political correctness isn't overt meanness and cruelty and indifference to how your actions, decisions, word choices, etc., affect other people. Right. Um, you know, I, I, was, I as I look at the uh, the political spectrum today, and and and. I really try to withhold my little my little tweets. Yes, I, I'm really trying to be uh, introspective and hesitant in doing this, uh, and and realizing that on the on the response to this, there's somebody out there who I may be uh, uh, being unkind to. But I do believe that there's some basic things in this world that if we just looked what was best for the next generation. All stop. Yeah. Just that. the consideration is not your forty-year-old child; it's that ten-year-old girl, woman. Uh, what is best for her and her offspring? And I think we've got a pretty good life here in America today. And what we can do overseas—that's another issue that we can talk about. But here, let's prepare for a fabulous future. Yeah. Whether we're in agriculture, keeping in mind in agriculture, we don't own the land. We're really just using it as a the bank's just resource. letting you have it for a while. Well, you're in, in, in the bank of humanity and yeah. humankind. You are a sharecropper mm -hmm. 
And so you, you, you value it. You, you, it's most pressured commodity, uh, the air we breathe, et cetera. Uh, um, this is something that we, we need to be thinking about the next generation after next. And it's not all about everybody getting wealthy all the time for crying out loud. It's about quality of life and the, and the elements of quality of life isn't necessarily that, uh, you've got a burgeoning income. But you just can get along, and 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 you, the life of those following you is is a step better, and that makes should that should make you exceedingly happy. Yeah, I think some of my frustrations with my uh, with my parents and my some of people in my parents' generation now that I have young children, I have a five year old and a two year old, has really been like, look, I get how this is good for your retirement accounts. I get how this is the way you've always liked things, but I got to think about these kids 30 years from now. And I think we could all as Americans do a better job thinking of, you know, if everyone acted the way that I'm acting, what would that look like? Or if everyone thought as short term as I'm thinking right now, how, where would that leave us as a society? And I think some of the the difficulties we're having now is because we've thought short term for, for quite a long time and we've kicked those problems down the road and now they're they're all right in front of us. Well, the expediency politically is expediency from a political perspective is synonymous with something not not well conceived. Yes, and I and I was going to say something more critical. Uh, you know, let, let's let's take let's just take environmental issues. Yeah, uh, McKinsey and Deloitte and so released reports today, uh, and I'm an I'm an engineer. I'm I, I'm I'm I want to make sure that. We've got a great future for the next generation, and that's part of part of the quality of life. But maybe we, as a nation, really need to concentrate on what's happening in Uganda and Nigeria, so that when they reach a standard of living that approximates ours, and and that's really what they ought to aspire to, sure, or something better than ours. I'll take for instance South Korea that they can do so in environmentally in a friendly way and a that looks out for the lowest elements the lowest fringe of society and brings them forward and they don't do the development that we did which was rather carbon intensive let's let's say and 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 did did no did a lot of not not good things with the water etc find more economical ways because we you know we're just at three and a half percent of the world's population but we can really dictate how the rest of the world comes up. And well, that's achieves. that American empire that we were talking about, Absolutely. the soft and, empire. And, and our empire legacy can be improving the quality of life worldwide, which everybody will benefit from. I think that's right. Yeah, you know, you, you were quoting Hillel uh, earlier, the if not me, then who. What I love, one of his, someone asked him if he could, if he could summarize the Torah while standing on one leg. And uh, he said, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, all the rest is commentary. And it strikes me that religious or not, we have struggled, especially during the pandemic, of just plain giving a crap about other people the way that we care about ourselves. And I think that, you know, is partly why we are where we are. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, uh, as I'm, as I'm jogging or walking or something, when I see somebody bend over and pick up a Sunday newspaper and put it in the stoop of the house when yes. it's raining, yes, you know, that's what we, that's just that kind of mindset 
and they're not looking for the the next uh, uh, to, to, to take note and say, hi, I'm doing this for you. They're just doing it. Mm-hmm. It's that type of um, outreach, regardless of who it is to just, and, and, and we've lost a lot of that in society. Uh, and then we, 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 we categorize, we, we put titles over people. He's a liberal Democrat. Actually, define that for me. And yeah. And and of course, there's there's a there's there's also a level of ignorance behind a lot of this. Yes, uh, you know the the, uh, the 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 fascist socialists. It's like where did this come from? What is that? I don't understand what that is. Just this name calling that that is uh, so specious and uh, undeserving that that too must be addressed. Well, I imagine you get a lot of that. I, I get it too for some of the stands that I've taken. And, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm being made into a, you know, a Marxist or something. And it's like, I'm financially well off. I live on a ranch in Texas. I own guns. I, you know, I like, I drive a Ford F-150. I am much more in alignment with you than you think you are. But to me, what comes well before your political beliefs, you know, if you like this policy or that policy, you know, this or that is... Do you buy into the idea of a social contract? Yes or no. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's really what we're arguing about is some people have decided the social contract is null and void and other people are fighting to uphold it. Some are Republicans, some are Democrats. But it's almost as if we're fighting between like nihilism and the system that has made America the most successful country in the history of the earth. It seems like an obvious choice to me, but apparently there's some debate. Well, so here's another oddity. Um, I was told, hey, don't tell anybody you went to MIT. <laughs> well, I, I don't, but it's in my bio that, you know, I'm a, well, you should. What you are you, smart or something? You should take that out. You should take yeah. the fact that you went to graduate schools out. You should, you know, shh, shh. It's like, when did that happen? Yeah. When did that happen that? That a family that has a you know starts out in a one room schoolhouse and you know why is that a bad thing? I don't I don't get it. I mean, isn't that kind of what we want in America? Uh, and and uh, and shouldn't we shouldn't we relish the opportunity to sit in class with those people who are less gifted with us academically, so we can help them come along? Why do we need to segregate these these gifted kids from the kids that are? are have, have a little more of a struggle in school. I don't entirely understand that. It, it's, you know, at one time I, um, uh, we were living in uh, outside of Washington, D.C., in one of the more uh, ferny neighborhoods, and uh, they were segregating the school districts. And the get-together was actually held for, the, for this, this, this vote on where to draw the line. It was actually in a church, a large church, a, a uh, massive thing. And uh, the people arguing vehemently to keep those apartment houses out of this school district, the apartment houses, just so you know, were like three miles away. And if they were kept out of our school district, they would be in this other school district that was like eight miles away. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense to bring them in ours. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's logic. And uh, yet these God-fearing, fabulous people said, you know, we really don't want that many school lunch program individuals in our school. So so I raised my hand. I said, you know, doggone it. I'm going to see some of you at either the church or synagogue the next morning. 
I'm going to look at you in a different way. Yeah. And uh, there, there's, where's your sense? It ain't all about your little Jeffy and Susie. This is about the Jeffies and, and, and Tyrones over there. Let's bring them as best we can up with us. All, all a rising tide is good for all ships. Yeah, I, I heard a great sort of uh, distinction of how they, they were saying that if you used to hear someone go, we're going to put a, a pool in for the kids, right? That meant we're putting in a public swimming pool for the neighborhood. And now when you hear someone say we're putting in a, a pool for the kids, they mean in their backyard for yeah. only their kids. Now, of course, you know, unfortunately, if you actually wrestle with American history for far too long, that meant a pool in the neighborhood for only a certain kind of kid, right? So it wasn't, you know, we, we can't whitewash what the past was, but I do think there is this distinction between sort of the, the community mindset versus the individualistic mindset that, that uh, you know, again, during the pandemic, we've really struggled with how to think about things as a community, as opposed yeah. to just what's good for me and mine. Freedom to versus freedom from. Yes. Yes. Well, let, let me ask you one, one last thing, because I know you're running for Senate and uh, I've, I've been following your campaign. It's been interesting. My, my books have, uh, have 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 gotten a little bit of a, a following in Washington and I've gotten to go see different uh, elected officials. Um, and one of the things I, I always found interesting when I would talk to these people. So, so you know, you're talking to one of a hundred of the most powerful people in America and therefore the world. I, you talked earlier about the idea of the next rung, right? Everyone's always thinking about what do I do after this? Yeah. I would think that, you know, becoming a senator is like as high as you can get. Now, this is a person with real power to affect change, to make things happen. But it's always been interesting to me when you talk to these elected officials, how it's almost as if they're kind of passive observers as of, of what's happening, right? Like they're because they're, you know, thinking about reelection or they're thinking about, you know, being appointed to this officer, they're thinking about their party. How do you think as a, as a person who, who served in the Navy and, and actually sort of did, like as a leader, your job was to do things. How are you thinking about if you get elected that you'll not fall into whatever that trap is that prevents people from making the principled but perhaps costly decision now uh, at the expense of, you know, being around later to then really do what they think they can do. Uh, complicated. Um, so you know, I thought you were going to ask me, what do you want to do after you're a senator? And I was thinking, <laughs> um, I want to, I want to get that tree farm, the tree farm that I'll never experience the full grown trees, but you know, I really, really like to do this, uh, coaching special Olympics. I think of all, all these, the next higher, more important things. Um, some of it is just volunteering your expertise on the street that you're in, in your neighborhood, sure. being in charge of your whole organization, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to keep giving of your gifts, your experiences until you can no longer do that. And, and on the range of import, well, that's an internal decision. Sure. And, and if it is taking care of a sickly neighbor for the next three years or a family member, you know, that's pretty doggone important in the greater scheme of things. And when you're gone, uh, that energy that you did will be an important thing. Uh, and it does, it, you know, you don't have to have a have a have a page dedicated to you in the almanac of Americans. It's not necessary. 
Sure. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think the, um, uh, I think the end state for all of this is that uh, you've got to have a large, a large magazine of things you want to do. Yeah. And you've got to be realistic in what you can do. But if if uh, if your your vision is shared by many, I tweeted this morning that I envision a light rail of a high speed train system, not necessarily a light rail, that we electrify our trains instead of diesel locomotives, sure. and that 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 direct current line becomes an AC, a series of AC charging DC and AC charging stations. And this is just part of this expanded electrical grid, which this nation needs to do to bring in EVs. Sure. And, and well, we electrify, we take the rural electric cooperative and we amp it up to the 10th power. So, I mean, if I, if I could have any job as, as next, I mean, I would sacrifice running for the U.S. Senate today. If someone said, Franken, you knucklehead, Africa, back to Africa, and set up a continent-wide electrical grid across boundaries as sustainable economical as you can to treat every village, every person to be able to charge a cell phone. Please give that job to me. And and, and if I could be a, a Stapleton and, and that would be the last thing I would do on earth, I would take, I would do that. I can't think of anything better than to provide something like that for a large mass of individuals. Now, in for Iowa, I see a different agriculture and a different, I mean, a, a whole a whole assortment of issues. So you line them up, and as long as your body can and mind can keep at it, you tick those babies off, and uh, and then there'll come a time and you'll say, you know what. Um, Something that's less less engaged but equally important on a smaller scale, it's time to jump off to that. I can't imagine, I can't imagine going to work and reflecting on my day and when my wife's saying, Hey, how'd, how'd your day go, dear? And I'm saying, you know, I just kind of coasted all day. She would she would say, Oh, you need to go see, oh, something's wrong with you. You know, let me yeah. <laughs> let me take sharp objects away from you. Well, how do you but how do you think about, you know, and I think we saw a lot of this over the, the pre previous four years where, you know, people thought people would say one thing in private and then sort of vote or do another thing in public because they were worried about reelected, being reelected or challenging their base or being criticized by the president. I, I guess I'm just how do you think about what? Let's say you get into office, you're there and, and I, yeah. I hope you do. How do you how do you make sure that that office doesn't change you? Because it seems like so many people get elected. Then once they get there, uh, all the values or skills or, you know, uh, courage that they had in their previous life, it seems to escape them. And then they become this sort of creature of the political world. Have you thought about that? Oh, daily, hourly, minute, minute by minute. Um, so the key here, in my estimation, is to be yourself. And the problem with our political system is people buy you that office. It's as, it's as, it's as, I mean, that's what, that's where this crazy system that we have where big donors, organizations, PACs, et cetera, help you get elected. And then there's, 
there's this unspoken thing about, hey, you owe me, dude. Right. Um, I mean, can you think of anything as improper as that? So as a as a naval officer, I think as a as as a someone who doesn't necessarily keep tabs as to who gave me money, my campaign, I generally I generally don't look at those reports at all. I'm only issues related. I'd rather read a read a policy paper from SICE. Uh your one of your books, I mean, I'm I'm looking at this one. I don't have it yet by George, but I will. That the the fortune favors the brave. I'm gonna dissect it and send you a note about it. I would love that. Say it's, it's one of these. Well, I'm sure it'll be favorable. But um, you know, I people know and they vote for me, I hope, that they're voting for, you know, me. And and it's a collection of of experiences. Uh, and I and I said to a, a farmer in Northwest Iowa the other day, and he's voted for nothing but a Republican his entire life. I'm sure of it. Uh, he said, "Hey, Frank, and we kind of need your assistance to 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 bring about these changes in the corporate structure and agriculture, blah blah blah." And um, I said, "Fine." Uh, and I think the reason he called me is because he knows, you know, where I grew up. He knows my sisters. Uh, he knows my mom and dad, uh, and he, he, you know, he's, he's talked with me before we've had a beer. Um, he knows kind of where I am. And frankly, I can't think of anything more important than, um, uh, like a, like Senator Manchin saying, if this is best for West Virginia, I'm going with what's best for West Virginia. And then either, either upsetting West Virginia or the or the Republicans or the Democrats, I don't know who the hell it would be, but ultimately to get voted out of office. And you know what? He did the right thing for his constituents. He did what's right for the region. He did what's right for the region's progenity. It's okay to lose your office for that. And you know what? Celebrate that. Have a have a have a holiday that you get voted out of office. What the hell? It's designed to have this rejuvenating regenerative system. It's not meant to have people that are in office for 46 years. Yeah, you're not supposed to preserve yourself at all costs. That it's a, it's not a lifetime uh, appointment. It's a it, you're supposed to go there, do a job and as you said even with your friend who's the admiral, you're supposed to do your job uh hopefully it cu- it cuts your way, but if it doesn't then you move on and you do the next right thing. Well, if, if, if we could have senators run for no more than two terms, if we could have House of Representatives become a four-year stint and no more than three of those stints, if we can make the president run for a single five-year period and ne- never run again, I think our nation would be better off. I agree. And, I mean, it's time for a wash. I think I think that's right, and uh, and hopefully Iowa will uh, will see its first refresh in a in a very long time as well with you. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We shall well, see. It, it was an honor. Thank you for the service, and uh, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ryan, very much. Thank you for listening to the Daily Stoic podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's an honor. Please spread the word. Tell people about it, and. This isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.